You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Live. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Botter, and I am here with Deb, and she sounds really chipper today. Yeah, it's sunny out, warm. Yeah, no. I do want to uh, announce and thank Al Gore, as I always do, for global warming. We just got a foot of wet, heavy snow the day before yesterday. It was lovely. Uh, it snowed for a day and a half, almost two days. Mm. And then it's melting. And what happens where I live is the heavy snow gets in the trees and breaks the tree branches, uproots trees. And I know, Deb, you said that uh, you had seen quite a few uprooted trees because of the weather as well. Oh, yeah. We're so waterlogged right now. And the trees just, when the high winds come, over they go. Yeah. Same here. That's why when we go down the mountain, we usually have a chainsaw with us just in case because you never know what you're going to get into, especially here in Montana because um, the federal government has been managing the, the forest for uh, many, many years quite, quite well. And uh, we're just choked with dead trees and they're not, we're not allowed to, to move, remove them. God forbid you do a burning like you're supposed to. They don't understand about this um, uh, controlled burn thing. You know, they got so upset in the 70s about it all. Uh, that's why we have um, our, our, our native plants being choked out by not native plants. We have, we have, um, well, it begins with a K, Kudzo, all over the place. Big problem down south. But if they let you do a controlled burn, you would fertilize the, the uh, soil and, and uh, make room for new growth. And, you know, it, it just helps all the way around. But, oh, no, no, the env- environmental Nazis didn't like that idea, so... Well, it's called kudzu, and what they tried to do in Tallahassee when I lived in Florida, because it was all under, out of control as well, is that, you know, to, uh, with this, like you're saying, a stupid environmental Nazi idiot, <laughs> was bringing goats to eat it. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, but it got shut down because the environmental uh, Nazis and PETA said that was cruelty to animals. Yeah. Yeah giving them free food and paying the person who had the goats. Because where I used to live in North Florida, it's a huge goat area. People, they, they show goats. They've got milk goats. I mean, it, it's a thing. Meat goats. It's just a thing. It's a goat thing down where I used to live in Wakulla County. And, um, you know, they would supplement their, you know, living by paying the, the 
people that raised the goats to go up there, but no, that wasn't good enough for them either. No, I know that it's just so sad. They had I knew a goat herd her uh, who would um, you know rent out his goats if your field was overgrown in California. I think they they do it here too. But well, they do it, and they they try to do the same program in Helena because of the horrible, horrible weed program, and it got shut down again for the same reason. I know, and it's just fine. It's a good thing. But anything that's good, of course, has to be against the law. So, anyway, today we are going to go to New Jersey. Um, we've only been there once before, but Deb has found a bunch of ladies out of New Jersey during the Revolutionary War. So we're going to be revisiting this area again. Uh, this area is was really vital during the Revolutionary War, this little teeny state, little teeny colony, because it was the gateway between Pennsylvania, specifically Philadelphia, and New York City. So I think one of our articles say how many wars were, uh, battles were fought. This, this little area had the most revolutionary battles of the entire Revolutionary War. I mean, I, I find it fascinating that these poor people that <laughs> lived in New Jersey had to go through this. But anyway, it was really important. And it was also the area that George Washington stayed during the winter and, of Valley Forge. Um, it was right around that whole, this whole area that we're going to be talking about. And now, we always do a patriot, and we always we do two patriots and two loyalists, and then we also do the women, the wives of the signers of the Declaration of Independence once a month. Now, we did two patriots, and now it's time for a loyalist. But I love when we find this because it shows how complicated the war was and how everybody just got mixed up in stuff that they didn't even think that would ever happen to them. Because we do not know if the Adoza Provost Burr was a loyalist. And when we talk about her and the part she played in the Revolutionary War, we're going to let you decide. I just think she was an opportunist, but again, we'll let you decide. And also she was, um, how do you say it, um, protecting Deb? Yeah, she was, she was definitely making sure her family was safe her kids. Right. The other thing with the colonial times is that if your husband was a loyalist, and her husband was, and her stepfather, and her brother-in-law, then no matter what, you were deemed a loyalist. So that made it a little bit more dicey for her as well. And when we get into our, her uh, situation, you can see how she was deciding to protect her family and her home. So, we're going into New Jersey. Now, this is a really touchy area because it's between the up the Northern Theater and the Middle Theater, and it's kind of on both sides. So, um, it's not really cut and dry. And, um, let's see. Yeah, I think that, that'll about do it because what we're going to start with is a brief history of New Jersey 
and Bergen County where she's at in New Jersey. And I'm going to have Deb take that away. Okay. This is from the statenewjersey.us uh, website. And it's a short history because you can go for hours on the history of New Jersey. But during colonial times, Around 1524, Giovanni de Verrazzano, and I'm sure I didn't say that quite right, became the first European to explore New Jersey. He sailed along the coast and anchored off Sandy Hook. The colonial history of New Jersey started after Henry Hudson sailed through Newark Bay in 1609. Although Hudson was British, he worked for the Netherlands, so he claimed the land for the Dutch. It was called New Netherlands. Small trading colonies sprang up where the present towns of Hoboken and New and Jersey City are located. The Dutch, Swedes, and Finns were the first European settlers in New Jersey. Bergen, founded in 1660, was New Jersey's first permanent European settlement. In 1664, the Dutch lost New Netherlands when the British took control of the land and added it to their colonies. They divided the land in half and gave control to two proprietors, Sir George Carteret, who was in charge of the east side, and Lord John Berkeley, who was in charge of the west side. The land was officially named New Jersey after the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. Carteret had been governor of the Isle of Jersey. Berkeley and Carteret sold the land at low prices and allowed the settlers to have political and religious freedom. As a result, New Jersey was more ethically and ethnically diverse than many other colonies. Primarily a rural society, the colony grew to have about 100,000 people. Eventually, governing power was transferred back to England. For many years, New Jersey shared a royal governor with New York. The governorship was split in uh, 1738 when New Jersey got its own governor, Lewis Morris. Um, In the years before the revolution, anti-British feelings spread throughout the state. About one-third of the people living here supported the rebels. One-third supported England and one-third remained neutral. In 1776, New Jersey declared itself an independent state and joined the colonial side in the Revolutionary War. It was an important state during the war because of its location near the center of the 13 colonies and between New York City and Philadelphia. Because of this, more battles were fought in New Jersey than any other state. The Americans and British fought 100 battles, both large and small here. Many people consider the Battle of Trenton To be the turning point of the revolution, immediately after winning Trenton, General George Washington won the Battle of Princeton. Having lost two battles in a matter of hours, the British fled New Jersey for New York. Washington and his troops spent the rest of the winter in Morristown, and the United States was well on its way to victory. You want me to go into the Battle of Trenton, or you? No, no, we're not going to get into the weeds, because we have a lot to get through. Yes, we do. Okay, so that is the short history of New Jersey during colonial times. Now, um, the Bergen County, which is where uh, Our Lady resided, is uh, this is um, the history of Bergen County, New Jersey, by James N. Van Valen, and it was written in the early 1900s, this book that I found, and uh, let's see, it starts, 
By an act of the General Assembly in 1662, East Jersey was divided into four counties, Bergen, Essex, Middlesex, and Monmouth. The territory between the Hudson and Hackensack rivers, extending from, um, oops, I just went too far with my little page here, extending from Constable Hook to the Providence Line constituted the county of Bergen, it being a narrow strip of land and no place over five or six miles wide, but from 25 to 30 miles in length. The old township of Bergen was constituted in 1658, 24 years prior to that time, and it comprised the southern portion of this strip of territory as far up as the present northern boundary of Hudson County. In 1693, an act defining the boundaries of townships was passed by the General Assembly, and from that act we obtained the boundaries of Hackensack Township. By an act passed January 24, 1709, the territory of the county was extended and comprised uh, the Hudson County and part of Passaic. The boundary line was as follows, beginning at Constable Hook, so up along the bay and Hudson River to the partition between New Jersey and the province of New York, along this line and the line between East and West Jersey to the Pequinock River, down the Pequinock and Passaic Rivers to the Sound, and so following the Sound to Constable Hook, the place of beginning. I love how they wrote. Um, let's see. Um, the Township of Union again became part of Bergen County in 1653. The Township of New Barbados in 1693 comprised all the land between the Hackensack and Passaic Rivers in Newark Bay on the southeast to the present boundary line of Sussex County. And uh, let's see, the, don't need to know all that. Um, oh, but yeah, this is fun. The territory now comprising Hudson County, then known as Bergentown, was purchased from the Indians by the Director General and Counselor of New Netherlands for Michael Powell, Burgomaster of Amsterdam and Lord of Achtenhoven near Utrecht, um, August 10, 1860. And... Uh, he was also he also obtained a deed from the Indians for Staten Island and uh, uh, a deed for the western shore of the Hudson. He was quite quite an ambitious fellow. Uh, anyways, getting back to um, the history here, uh, but in 1638 the Indians became troublesome, and the county, on this account, was kept in an unorganized conditions for many years, resulting finally in the Ordinance of 1656, creating a fortified town and the purchase of Bergen Township from the Indians in 1658. This late, latter deed conveyed all that part of Old Bergen, um, east of the Hackensack River in Newark Bay, now known as Hudson County. Uh, the hill on which Bergen was built is now called Jersey City Heights. You have to remember this was, you know, I think this was written in 1908. Um, the town was divided into four quarters by two streets crossing each other at right angles. Gates were on the four sides to lead through the Palisades. The village having grown so rapidly, on the 5th of September, 1651, an ordinance was passed erecting a court of justice at Bergen by Petrus. Stephen, uh, Stephen, I know how to say this. Stevenson, <laughs> I used to know how to say that because I lived Stevenson. Stevenson, on behalf of the high and mighty Lord States General of the United Netherlands, etc., etc. <laughs> this is—they took themselves very seriously. 
The first officers of the court appointed under the directors of the West India Company were Thielman Van Vleck, Schout, Sheriff, Hermanius Schmiemann, and Kasparus Steinmetz-Schreppens, magistrates. Well, there you go. These officers were held until the surrender of New Netherlands to the Crown of Great Britain in 1664. You can see it had a tumultuous beginning. Now, it, it uh, um, really did go through quite a bit of uh, this and that. But uh, let's see. Um, on two sides of the hill was March, and the only other place for settlement was along the river. To the eye of the Hollander, accustomed to look upon marshes or lowland redeemed from the sea, the ridge growing in height as it extended north from the Kill Van Kull was no mean affair. To him it was Bergen, the hill, and like the places of the same name in Europe, it took its name from the hill on which it was built. So that was the be beginning of Bergen County. And uh, I had never been there. Um, I lived in New Jersey. I lived in Trenton. But I, I might have gone through it, but I don't recall being, um, you know, in that area. So, hmm. okay. So now. I don't think I've ever been to New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> I've driven um, through it, but that's about it. Yeah, I I I uh I lived in Trenton for over a year and um I was basically we just went to Pennsylvania to Bucks County. <laughs> it was much nicer over there. Yeah, unfortunately all of those places are complete trash now. Yeah, it's it's too it's too bad. It is. I saw the whole country. It's some the whole country. I'm sad of the whole country. <laughs> the latest thing that they're trying to pin on our president is beyond the pale. Everybody, everybody I talk to is just disgusted. I mean, they're not doing themselves any favors, and they are just disgusted. They should be. But anyway, now getting back to Theodosia. Right. Okay. So let me start her off. And Theodosia Bartow died in a carriage, Theodosius, sorry, Bartow died in a carriage accident in Shrewsbury, New Jersey in 1746 at the age of 34, while his wife Anne was pregnant with their only child, Theodosia Bartow. For five years, Anne raised Theodosia as a single parent apparently partially in Shrewsbury and partially in New York City, where several of her sisters and brothers were living. Since two of Anne's sisters had recently married men with military backgrounds, and Anne met and married British Captain Philip D. Weissney. Uh, uh, yeah, I, it's, they're, they're very hard names with this one. <laughs> yep, the Weissney in 1751. Anne had five children with Philip between 1752 and 1768, half-brothers and sister to Theodosa. Philip died in 1768, and Anne, at 49, was again a widow, now with six children. Theodosia was then 16. 
Now, we tried to find out um, some of the rights of the colonial women because she was a widower. And there is going to be a little bit of a discrepancy in these articles that we read. This is from the Women's History blog. And um, this has happened before that one account says this happened, one account says that that happened. But Deb did find something about um, the widow's rights. And actually, when she tells us, um, they had more rights than other women in colonial times, right? Yeah, yeah. This is, um, uh, let's see. Whoops. That's, okay. Now, we have the women's history blog, The Life of a Colonial Wife, which talks about, let's see if I can get to it here. Um, Oh, that just tells you, this one just tells the life of a, a colonial woman. Um, let me get to the other one here. Uh, this is from landofthebrave.info. The legal rights of colonial women. And it says legal rights of colonial women were few. And this is this is pre-revolutionary war. You have to remember that this is um, from the 1600s to the about mid-1700s because they came over, the women that came over, for the most part, many of them in the beginning were no, you know, they were basically indentured servants. Um, and they just wanted to make a better life for themselves. Uh, so they thought by coming to America, you know, that they could, they could do that. Because you have to remember Europe, uh, especially England, um, you know, it, it was, it was, going through a hard time. Britain was at war all the time and there was all these monarchy changes and, and there's the religious fervor and oh my goodness, it just wasn't that easy to be, especially a single woman in England. So they, if you were a single woman and you were poor and you, you thought you could, you know, start your uh, new life in, in America, you, you went. But, uh, um, it wasn't until later on that uh, women that were married, you know, well, would come with their husbands and families. So, but they also um, came over with the same rights that they had had in Britain or their country of origin. And most of them, being, you know, from Britain, were under the the uh, British common laws of marriage. And, and if you know of Blackstone, Blackstone he wrote the, the legal book, the Book of Law, um, that all the lawyers read. And that was basically, you know, what the only um, legal tome, you know, that they had at the time. So they were under the, the British common laws. And it says, uh, men dominated society and women were subservient to the men in her family, such as her father and brothers. Divorce was practically unknown in colonial America, uh, as a colonial America was essentially a divorce-free society. Colonial women did not have the right to vote, did not have the right to hold and form a public office. Colonial women did not have the right to serve on juries. 
and the rights of unmarried women and widows. Widows and unmarried women could make a will, buy or sell property, act as a guardian, and had the right to sue or be sued, and a widow received a one-third interest in the personal property of her deceased husband, one-half if there were no children. Um, the rights, when, when a colonial woman married, her legal identity virtually disappeared. The legal existence of the woman was suspended during the marriage. Any property or goods, including livestock and money, left to a married woman in a will was also owned by the husband. And the husband owned whatever belonged to his wife, except for personal items such as clothes and jewelry. Children legally belonged to their fathers. Married women had fewer rights than unmarried women or widows Uh, because married women could not make a will without the explicit consent of her husband, could not buy property, and could not make a contract, could not sue or be sued in court. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because when we highlighted... um, who was it, James Mason? Now, hold on. Um, he specifically, because he knew this was, was the way of the uh, colonial period, he was one of the first and only people, because he also was a lawyer, that made, um, yeah, George Mason, sorry, George Mason. Mm. He uh, did prenups for his daughters. Right. So that they could get property and keep it and it be in their name. Yeah. To protect them and, and, and their property because he wanted them to stay in the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know, that, that was, um, the poor people didn't really do that. So the woman was, you know, basically uh, a partner to her husband but through her husband's interest, you know, in the in the 1600s to the 1700s, um, and they had they they usually worked in occupations where they could work from the home. I mean, they they, they had kids. You know, the the married women had kids, and they were responsible for the kids. And so, you know, it was it was. Uh, Interesting because in my reading of this, it was stated that not many women stayed single. Um, yeah, you, you. It was hard. It, it was. Uh, it it wasn't as easy. It was easier if you had property or money, but you know these women had to, uh, especially if they had kids, they had to feed those kids. So some of them, um, before they remarried, would uh, have to work on other people's farms or they, you know, were seamstresses or spinners, you know, they'd they'd, uh, spin cloth and anything that they could do, laundry, um, and, and they would, you know, become, if they had to, they'd become servants in, in other people's houses. So, um... Yeah, it was pretty tough to be a a widow if you didn't have any property or money. Um, you know, because they weren't they didn't work outside the uh, the home very you know very much. It was the exception, not the rule. So, uh, 
it, you know, plus the fact that it, it, it made sense that widows could do what they could do in single women because they did not have husbands to do it for them. You know, so they they allowed them to do those things, but it was hard to to uh, keep a living and and raise your kids and everything. There was no not much social welfare. The church would take care of you to a certain extent, but you know, if you had to pay rent, you had to have the money to pay rent and feed your kids. And, all that. So that is uh, the difference between the married and the unmarried. Okay. Yeah, and this article really doesn't say how um, uh, her mother, um, you know, got the money to raise them or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Over there's a, a uh, website called the Contemplator.com. Um, it tells uh, of, you know women in the revolutionary era, and it goes into a short history of um, what it was like for for women. And it's it's an interesting article. Uh, I mean. The indentured, women indentured servants did not have the freedom to marry without the consent of their master. And if they did so, they were subject to fines or extension of their service. And women who bore illegitimate children during their service were subject to the same and could also be publicly whipped. Free white women in populated areas could often find employment as maids, cooks, laundresses, or seamstresses. Um, you know, it, it's just that they, it, I mean, you had to uh you had to do what you you could do um, women could inherit their husband's businesses um you know they owned apothecaries foundries and taverns which we have done some women who who did and they were barbers midwives sextons and blacksmiths many women took in borders for extra money there were also many women printers um you know, so that there was some economic opportunity for women, but once you were married, you know, you you basically did what your husband told you to do. I if, if in case I sneeze unexpectedly, it's because the pollen here is as thick as um, corn starch, and I have it. I was outside all day, and I I am sorry, but so if a sneeze gets by me, I do apologize. So that is um oh, I, hmm. <laughs> have little um, there. Hold hold on a minute. Okay. <laughs> I got alarms going off all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you know, women especially at this time in history spent most of their time in the house. Um, and if she did not have a husband, she was probably assisting a parent relation or master because the whole the, the family network was um, usually one or two grandparents were living with them, you know, in the rural areas especially. 
Um, and if they could, you know, if, if they didn't have much money, but they had land, everybody kind of lived together. And, you know, so it wasn't like this this woman lived alone. She she usually had relations or, you know, others uh, that that were there because they, they, uh, they were spending most of their time making stuff, um, candles, soap, clothing, and food. Uh, you know, life was labor intensive. Yeah, and it did say that she went between where she lived and then went to New York City with her, uh, her, her sister and, and her sisters and brothers. Mm. Yeah. Which is why it was so, you know, it was, it, it's really, it's not cut and dried. You know, so much uh, of what is told, they have it cut and dried. And, and the thing is, is colonies had, you know, different colonies had different laws. Um, and, and as the 1600s went into the 1700s, America was formed. And you had people who were born in America and life wasn't the same for them as it was in Britain or Europe, which was very well established, established rules, established mores, established um, classes. It was much, much more uh, of a gray area in America. And different colonies, you know, when they started making their constitutions, these were done by people who had been here for a generation or two, you know. And America did have a different different uh, attitude toward a lot of things than the the crusty old Europeans and the Brits. You know, they 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 had a new frontier, and things had to change because certain situations that you know the Brits and the the Europeans were not um, having to contend with, uh, like Indian raids and you know fights. Different landscapes. I'm going to go back to Theodosia. There's no record from Women's History Blog. There's no record that Theodosia had any extensive schooling. But her knowledge of languages, her analytic abilities, and her reading habits indicate that she was educated at home far more extensively than most privileged women in the colonial New York area. Through her stepfather and her uncles, she was introduced to young officers one of whom was James Marcus Prevost, a British Army officer of Swiss origin. In 1763, at age 17, Theodosia married James Marcus at Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan. Okay, so who was James Marcus Prevost? Okay. Prevost? No, I have him. I have him. Oh, you have him? Okay. Yeah. I do. It's right. We're trying oh, here. Very quickly. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> uh, okay. Prevost, because what we're going to be doing is, as we always do, is I'm going through the article about her and then everything surrounding her. Right. So Prevost was born in 1736 in French-speaking Switzerland to a family originating in Savoy. He had eight siblings, including elder brothers Augustine and Jacques Prevost. The two elder brothers both served in the army of the King of Sardinia, who ruled the Dutch Republic. So he wasn't even British, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Jack Marcus appears to have joined his two brothers in the military in the Netherlands. They were recruited and commissioned as officers by Great Britain for its new Royal American Regiment, which we will get into later on. Augustine received the rank of Major Jacques as a colonel and Jacques Marcus as a captain. In the 13 colonies, Britain recruited German and Swiss immigrant settlers as soldiers for the regiment after General Benjamin Braddock's defeat uh, in 1755 in Western Pennsylvania in the French and Indian Wars. Britain was threatened by war with France and was part of the Seven Years' War in Europe. The three Prevost brothers were sent as officers to North America in 1756. Jack's Mark was wounded at the Battle of Carlion Carlin, in New York in 1758. August, Augustine was also seriously wounded that year while serving with General James Wolfe's army near Quebec. The two previous brothers recuperated in New York City. Augustine served further with the Royal American Regiment, especially in the Caribbean, rising to lieutenant colonel. After recovery in 1761, Jack Marcus traveled with Henry Bouquet, a Swiss colonel in the Royal American Regiment, to set up a British post at Presque. Isle, um, they intended to deter French troops at Fort Niagara. Prevost was next assigned to command a body of troops in New York City after Britain defeated France and military activity was reduced. He was put on half pay. So um, that's her husband who was pretty much a Brit. I mean, he just was all in because he wasn't even British. He was actually Swedish. And um, which I found fascinating because he married an American. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's not surprising being that um, the Dutch had such a foothold in New Jersey for a long time, even though it was handed over to the Brit, British. Uh, you know, I'm sure many, many Dutch families still stayed there. So the fact that, you know, he... He was born in in uh, French, uh, you know, French uh, Swiss. It's the French part of Switzerland. Um, you know, it would make sense that he, you know, New Jersey would be a place where he would end up. Right. So they got married. She was seventeen years old, and within months, previous was ordered to leave New York with his regiment for Charleston, South Carolina. Theodosia accompanied him there. However, by the end of the year, she was pregnant. Captain Prevost was allowed to take Theodosia back to New York, where she stayed with her mother, but there is no record of a child born in 1764. Meanwhile, Prevost was assigned to a detachment of troops at Fort Loudon on the Pennsylvania frontier. He returned to Theodosia in New York in 1765. In 1767, he purchased 150 unoccupied acres in Bergen County, north of Paramus, New Jersey, then bought 102 adjacent acres, which included a two-story house they named the Hermitage after the cottage of philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in Montserrati, France. This is where we have another account, isn't it? That this this actually was her mother's place of property, right? See, um, going over to the Hermitage is uh, 
website. Yeah. Now, the Hermitage, we're going to highlight three different articles and three areas because this is, the, this is the focal point of everything that's happening around her life. So this is at a very important place in, um, or are they Bergen County? Yeah. Well, the Hermitage website says that um, the original two-story stone farmhouse was built on the property in the mid-1700s. Following the French and Indian War, the house was purchased by James Marcus Prevost, an officer in the British Army. Um, at the dawn of the Revolution, Prevost was recalled into active duty, leaving his wife and children at the Hermitage. So that's what they say about that. Um, let's see. The uh, New Jersey history blog here. Uh, it says... One of the oldest structures in the borough, the Hermitage, was built in 1763 as a two-story brownstone house. Um, as advertised in 63 by Elizabeth Lane, the lot was about 105 acres and ready to, use, to be used as a plantation. Um, so, yeah, it seems like he bought it. Um, let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's see. Empire of marriage changed. Okay, Theodosa inherited the house and became the primary owner sometime before 1776. It says in 1767, Anne Bartow de, de Visme, which was Theodosia's, Theodosia's mother, moved her family out of Manhattan into the royal area of Hohoka. Um, she had the five children, one of was Theodosia. So, um, It seems like uh, it was sold in 63 by Elizabeth Lane to Anne Bartow de Visme, Visma, however you say that. Um, and then when she was, uh, then, so we're not sure <laughs> which, which it was. But anyway, Theodosia and James. Uh, otherwise known as Jacques, uh, and she either inherited the house or he bought it from the mother. We're we're not sure, but that's that's what we found. Okay, so um, between 1766 and 1771, Theodosia and James Marcus had five children two boys and three girls, who spent their childhood at the Hermitage. The boys were John Bartow, born in 1766, and Augustine James Frederick, born in 1767. Little is known of the girls, Anna Louisa, born in 1707, Mary Louisa, born in 1771, and Sally. And, and that's what we find all the time, right? They know everything about the boys, but they don't know anything about the girls. Right, yes. Well, and the reason that they know so much about the boys um, at this point is because the boys would either go into the military, so there's pension records and, and order right. books, um, and, or they would go into politics or law, so they would make a name for themselves, whereas the women, the girl children, you know, grew up to be married and, and be, you know, Ahead, you know, head of the household. Right. 
And if they didn't keep a diary of their letters, we don't know anything about them. Okay. So soon after the Prevost moved into their Bergen County land, they began to build another house and a number of mills down by the Hohokus Brook. When these were completed in 1770, the Prevost moved there and sold their previous home and 68 surrounding Erica's acres to Theodosia's widowed mother, Anne de Weiss. I don't know, Weiss me. I really don't know how to say that. I don't either. Who moved from New York City with her five young Device children. The Prevost moved into the home on the lower ground, which they called Little Hermitage. So now, I need um, Deb to go to the, um, hold on a minute, Herm hermitage.org and read the first paragraph. And then go to the New Jersey history on the Ho-Ho Cuss. Okay. Yeah, this is the original two-story stone farmhouse. And it was a pretty house, except that it didn't have many windows. was built, oh, well, it looked different then. It's changed. Okay, the original two-story stone farmhouse was built on the property in the mid-1700s following the French and Indian War. The house was purchased by James Marcus. Uh, um, at the dawn of the Revolution, Prevost was called into active duty, leading his wife and five children at the Hermitage. And I, I did read about the, uh, um, I read the Hohokas thing. Okay, but let's go on because it says, just like today, people during the pre-revolutionary war period moved from cities into more rural suburban areas. And in 1767, Ann Bartow de moved her family out of Manhattan into the rural area of Hohokas and had five children, yes, and one of them, Theodosia, who married James, and she inherited the house and became the primary owner sometime after, or before 1776. During the Revolutionary War, Lieutenant Colonel James Marcus Prevost was a loyalist fighting for the British. With battles being fought throughout the colonies, Theodosia was worried that her precious home would be overtaken and destroyed by the Patriots. By July 1778, the word had spread that General Washington and his troops were going to be passing through the whole house. Do you want me to go on about the general um, coming to our house? Are we there yet? No, because no, no, I'm going to get into it a little bit more okay. on this from this one. Um, okay. So that was that was an era, uh, an important place and an important building in that area. Mm -hmm. um, in 1772, Prevost's unit in the British Army, the Royal American Regiment, was ordered to the West Indies. In November of that year, he left from Perth Amboy and sailed to Jamaica to command one of the battalions of this regiment. He was back in New York in 1773. So. Now we need to find out what this Royal American Regiment was. Well, let me tell you. Going over to the Mad Monarchist blog spot blog site. I love this guy. He's he's got a, it's a wonderful article. But he writes about the Royal American Regiment, thankfully. And he says during the struggle between France and Britain for control of North America, 
In the conflict known to the Americans as the French and Indian War, the British forces had met with some early disasters that made it clear that some new military units with special skills would be needed to fight this war. A large British force under General Edward Braddock had been wiped out fighting the traditional way as if they were on a European battlefield. And we've mentioned this many times. I mean, they came over here and it was like, oh, <laughs> oh, it's different here. Uh, and um, and by a much smaller force of French and Indians who used the wooded terrain to their advantage. After word of this humiliation reached London, King George II gave royal assent to the formation of a new regiment for the British Army on Christmas Day, 1755. And this was the birthday of the 60th Royal American Regiment, originally the 62nd, it was renumbered a few years later, which was to include four battalions made up of many foreign soldiers with woodland experience, provided they were Protestant, of course, so as not to have any risk of sympathy with the Catholic French. And we, we've discussed the, uh, the, uh, the Civil War, well, the religious war between the, the Catholics and the Protestants going back to Henry VIII. Well, and you know, this, you know what's really interesting about this that we found this is because we've never heard about um, any of the British being a special regiment that had woodland experience. I mean, I've never heard of it before. We have never talked about it before on the show. We've been doing this for over three years, and none of the movies ever depicted this. No, no, it, it's you know they always show them in their you know proper formation, yeah, elbow to elbow back to front, just walking uh, towards the enemy. And and that's why, um, you know, the, the, especially the, the ones in the Kentucky ter- uh, Territory and, and the Southern Territory, they've been fighting like this for years. You know, and that was one thing they learned in the French and Indian War was guerrilla warfare. Right. And one thing that you said when, while, uh, when we were talking off the air was that you just couldn't understand why George Washington didn't use these tactics, right? Yeah, it was um, it was Nathaniel Green and Daniel Morgan who really brought it to the fore. And then, of course, the Swamp Fox in the Southern Theater. Um, you know, those three together got, you know, had, had units that, that were uh, very... You know, they were, they specialized in guerrilla warfare, is what we call it today. Basically, it was, you know, hit hit hard and hit fast and disappear. Unlike the British, who I say, you know, elbow to elbow, front to back, march on. But they had to come up with something because they were fighting Indians. And, of course, that's how Indians fight. They don't, you know, get all together in a nice square and march forward. They come out behind trees and bushes and things and and take care of you, and then they, you know, melt back into the landscape. So this was like an important change for the British Army. Um, And apparently King George III you know, during the Revolutionary War, um, he didn't really, he had his, you know, the troops, but for the most part, the the, the majority of the, the British soldiers that came over were, like I mentioned before, they were raw recruits. Um, they were the young ones. 
the foot soldiers. Um, and it was the, the the officers who had fought in the French and Indian War. You know, there, there were few and far between because, you know, they were they had done their duty and they were a lot of them retired and some of them stayed and they came over and they you know they they uh, took care of that part. Um, but they still King George the Third um, didn't pick it up like his father did. So, okay. Um, John Campbell, 4th Earl of Loudoun, was then Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in North America and Governor-General of Virginia, was appointed to the most ceremonial post of Colonel-in-Chief of the new regiment. The idea for the regiment originated with a Swiss soldier and comrade of the Duke of Cumberland named Colonel Jacques Prevost. It was he who suggested that a special unit of men, expert at fighting in heavily wooded areas, was what was needed in waging war in the wilds of North America. The ranks were to include a large percentage of Germans, some from the German states, others recruited from German-Americans in the colonies. To fully fill out the four battalions, large numbers of Irish were later recruited, and these were men who had been rejected for service in other regiments of the Irish establishment for the British Army, a point to remember. The battalions formed up in New York, but as far as leadership went, this was a regiment for America and not of America, to be sure. For the first time ever, the British Army also commissioned a number of foreign officers to lead a regular regiment. Out of 101 commissioned officers of the regiment, alongside English, Irish, and Scots, about half were foreigners. German and Swiss with some Dutch though none could rise above the rank of lieutenant colonel so as to ensure that a proper Briton was always in command. The principle behind the Royal American Regiment was not a unique one. Having a force that could fight the French-backed Indians using Indian tactics was also the idea behind the famous Rogers Rangers, from which the current special forces of the U.S. Army claims descent. However, the Rangers were irregular troops, and the very nature of their job and how they carried it out ensured that they were a rough, rowdy, and undisciplined bunch. Yes, if you read anything about Rogers Rangers, they certainly were. With the Amer- Royal American Regiment, it was hoped that the British Army could have a hit unit that combined some of the backwards fighting skills of the Rangers with the discipline and reliability of British regulars. Given its background and composition, some have referred to it as a mixture of a colonel colonial regiment and a foreign legion. They were dressed originally like any other British regiment, save for the fact that they had no lace on their coats, just plain blue turnbacks, blue being the traditional color of royal regiments. However, they would ultimately look very different in the field than what their original appearance was. Colonel Prevost had suggested a short jacket, Indian leggings, a leather cap he called a bonnet allemande, and even a simple kilt is the sort of outfit best suited to wilderness warfare in America. There is no evidence that they ever wore kilts, but much of the rest was eventually how the Royal Americans ended up. The traditional red coat was cut a bit shorter. Indian-style leather leggings did tend to replace the regulation black cloth leggings they were issued, and many even took to wearing Indian moccasins in place of their standard shoes. There is some evidence that leather caps, such as Prevost described, were worn, but others wore the usual cocked hat of the period, though after some time in the field, these were sometimes cut down to more more closely resemble the typical leather cap often worn by light infantry. Among the other regiments of the British Army, the Royal Americans had a 
effectively frontier look for to them, dress more practically for a serious fighting in the woods than for parade ground panache. What is interesting is that this regiment of American colonists, German and Swiss soldiers of fortune, and Irish rejects proved itself to be one of the best in the British Army. One of the battalion commanders, Henri Bouquet, a Swiss, literally wrote the book on tactics that were later adopted by the whole British Army and which remained standard for over a century to come. He and his fellow battalion commanders turned their diverse volunteers, many of whom had less than the best reputation, into true experts at wilderness warfare, and the changes to the uniform and their habits reflected that. During the French and Indian Wars, it carried on the Royal Americans at first had little opportunity to do what they were best suited for and fought in a number of battles in the traditional style. At that, however, they still did very well, and they saw action at the Siege of Louisbourg in 1758, the Cape Sable Campaign, and the final victory at the Battle of Quebec in 1759, as well as the subsequent advance of Montreal. It was at Quebec that their performance earned them the praise of the famous General James Wolfe, from whom they took their official regimental motto, Cellar A. Adox, Swift and Bold. However, later during Pontiac's Rebellion, they were able to prove themselves as experts at frontier fighting, particularly as Bouquet led them to victory at the Battle of Bushy Run, which culminated in a fearsome charge by the Royal Americans that is still remembered. This victory, won by a few hundred Scots Highlanders and the Royal Americans, enabled Bouquet to lift the siege of Fort Pitt and was the turning point in putting down the rebellion. Afterwards, the regiment was moved back to Europe, but one battalion always remained on station. After the American War for Independence, this was, of course, in Canada, where it remained until 1824. However, the 60th Royal Americans saw action on other ba- battlefields far from where they had been intended to serve. And it goes on and on and on about the rest of their history. And they were quite quite a... Uh, um, today, the tradition of the Royal American Regiment technically is held by the 2nd Battalion of the Rifles, a unit that was formed for merging several regiments. I'm going to sneeze now. Okay. Well, and that's the, one of the reasons that we had the War of 1812, because a lot of these British, so they were already here, and they didn't go back home, and they were in forts. Mm-hmm. And it was very easy. I mean, they actually, Britain um, violated the Treaty of Paris by quartering these people in our country. Yeah. And everybody knows the Treaty of Paris is what effectively ended the Revolutionary War, and they were supposed to all go home. And as you just said, they did not. No, they did not. And it kind of was our fault as well. But we were a young country. We just got over a war. We were struggling to pay back the, the debt for the war because that's what the Founding Fathers said, we should only go to war for Uh, into debt for war and we just dropped the ball yeah plus there was a lot going on um, and and they were trying not to get into another war with Britain and it was where that was really a change in the country 
um, the, the preceding decade was one of major change, and they were getting further and further away from the uh, the um, the original intent because new people were coming in and um, things, you know, were changing. Yep. Difficult time. We almost lost America in the first 15 years. We we'd almost went down the tubes. Yep. And you know, it's interesting that when you read that, how it it was important about what their uniforms would be. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is what took down a lot of the British soldiers, especially in the Southern Theater, I mean, those uniforms were wool. And they, they, you know, my God. Well, it, the British, the British looked at, at the uh, the foot soldiers basically as cannon fodder, um, and they would march them in the the humid heat. And my God, it was hot. And a lot of those summers, you know, the last um, summers of the war, hotter and humid and awful. And these guys would just drop from heat prostration because, you know, they had to wear all their gear. I mean, that was the British way. You had to stay. So, they, you know, instead of just shrugging off their their coats and and going on in their shirt sleeves, that was not allowed. And they had to wear those hats and, and they you know, wool stockings and and the pants, uh, I'm sure, were were wool. You know, they had a, a lighter wool, but still. Uh, these poor guys, they just they just would drop, and that would be that. I mean, you know, heat prostration got more men than you know gunshots. So, plus they were sick, and you know they they would get the the fevers and whatnot. So, it, it was it wasn't easy. And so, what you know, it was really smart of Prevost to to redesign the the uniform to make it easier for them to be out, you know, in the woods and whatnot on the frontier. So he left with this special regiment and then came back. He left and went to Jamaica. And then he was back in New York in 1773. And in January 1775, he obtained a royal grant of 5,000 acres in New York and invested in other properties. Some in conjunction with Anne de, de Visme, I'm just going to say de, de, de Visme, who was a widow, which was um, her mother, uh, who was a widow and could own real estate. So that's what we had brought up earlier, that because she was a widow, she could, get, she could own property, which is so bizarre to me. I know. It doesn't make much sense, but, you know. The acquisition and sale of lands to enhance one's economic position were typical in British North America prior to to the American Revolution. While Prevost, Destamy, and others were engaged in property acquisitions, another very different set of circumstances was unfolding in the American colonies. Taxation without representation, economic opportunities, Individual and community rights increased local self-rule and control of the western frontier 
had been issued since the mid-1760s. And we talked about this before um, when we did our last lady. Um, um, she was in uh, the middle theater in Pennsylvania, but she was on the frontier. And we had discussed how they went by British rule, like we always we keep saying, because they were British citizens. But what Deb said was true. They had to adjust because, like she said earlier, the, this was new territory. Um, but they weren't really crushed by the uh, monarchy or even we didn't have nobles. We didn't have, you know, any of that stuff here. Mm. So, you know, how were you going to deal with giving land to people? And they had to come up with new rules. That's why we are rugged individualists, not from whatever the progs say. That's not why. It's because we had to come up with our own way. And I'm sick and tired, and that's why Deb and I do this show. You need education, people. You need to fight back. They are, and I hate using this word, I think I'm going to look up a thesaurus and find another word, but... The progs in this country are completely unhinged. They're completely out of their minds. They are not even thinking rational anymore. I mean, am I right? Oh, yeah. They, 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 they are definitely suffering from some sort of uh, sad wiring. They, they, they're not wired right anymore. They just lost it this last election. I mean, they, they were on their way before, but it, this... The election just sent them into a whole new level of um, mental illness. <laughs> yeah, they're like completely spiraling. Yeah, they are. They're. I mean, God, I. Oh, yes. Oh. Anyways. Okay. So. Um, let's keep going. By the mid 1770s, there was increasing friction between the colonies and England. The impact of events would be dramatic for the Hermitage household. Hermitage household, sorry. Prevost was an important officer in the British military, as was his nephew and uncle. Among her relatives, there were significant splits, with most relatives favoring loyalty to the mother country, but some becoming pro-revolution. In 1776, James Marcus was called back to active duty with the Royal American Regiment. Meanwhile, 29-year-old Theodosia took charge of the hermitage, I don't know why I'm having a problem with this right now, with five children, a mother and a teenage half-sister. They faced survival amidst guerrilla warfare in heavily contested Bergen County from late 1776 into the early 1780s. Now, that's a long time, Deb, don't you think? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that's four years. Yes. And believe me, I mean, like I always tell everybody when we talk about gun control, okay, and we talk about uh, in my other show, and but this, it'll, I, I will, I will turn this ship around. But let me get into this first. When you are being assaulted by somebody, a minute seems like forever. And if you ever, if you have an uh, an analog clock, just sit in front of it and for one minute, just one minute. And see how long that really is. Mm. So four years of warfare must seem like an eternity, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, it must have been. Um, and, and plus the fact that, you, you know, we're so used to getting news every minute of every day now. 
Um, though those of us who are a bit older can remember, um, you got news twice a day, two hours a day. And uh, you read the paper, which came once a day. It used to come twice a day, but most papers then went to once a day. Uh, so you were, but now today, I mean, you just go on the internet and you find out the latest that just happened a minute ago. Um, but that back then, it took you know time, days, and weeks for news to reach. Well, what was happening in New Jersey might not be known in um, South Carolina for um, you know months. Unless somebody came with a newspaper or they had been there and they, you know, told the people, it, it you know, the different colonies, it took a while for them to, to find out what was going on. But, and the rumors, the rumors that would start um, about certain certain battles and certain, uh, you know, the, the British are marching on whatever. Um, so you didn't really know until it was happening to you. Exactly. Additionally, Theodosia had to fight against ongoing threat of confiscation of her home. Her efforts included a welcome to the hermitage for leading patriot officers and government officials. Among the visitors to the house during the revolution were James Monroe, the Marquis de Lafayette, Alexander Hamilton, and General William Alexander. Now we can go back to you can go back to the her, Hermitage um, from the Aaron Association or or um, uh, website because it gives and I I know what's going to be redundant because it's saying it in this article too but I like the way that they put it in that article as well. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Sorry, it just starts here. Some 20 miles to the northwest of here, across the Hudson and into then rural Bergen County, in the hamlet of Hopperstown, now Hohokus, just north of Paramus, stood the Hermitage, a two-story stone home built about 1760. It became the home of Theodosia Bartow, a fifth-generation American, and Captain James Marcus Prevost, a Swiss-born officer in the British Royal American Regiment. He fought in the French and Indian War and was wounded in the Battle of Ticonderoga. With the outbreak of the Revolutionary War in 1776, James Marcus was recalled back into service and became the second in command to his brother, General Augustine Prevost, in the outbreak, oh, in the successful 1779 British campaign in Georgia and the Carolinas. Meanwhile, Theodosia, who was 29 at the time, took charge of the Hermitage with five children, a mother, and a teenage half-sister. They faced survival amidst guerrilla warfare in heavily contested Bergen County from late 1776 into the early 1780s. Additionally, Theodosia had to fight against the ongoing threat of confiscation of her home. Her strong resourceful efforts included a welcome to the hermitage for leading patriot officers and government officials. In September 1777, when Aaron Burr was age 21, in command of Malcolm's regiment stationed to the north of the Hermitage in Suffern, New York, made a successful attack on a British picket outside of Hackensack, he stopped in Paramus, a Patriot post coming and going. Since a cousin of Theodosia, Captain John Watkins, was in Burr's regiment, he probably met Theodosia at this time. 
Burr's stay in Suffern was short, for he and his regiment were ordered to winter in Valley Forge, where Hamilton was also present. Late in the following spring, after leaving Valley Forge, the Continental Army engaged the British regulars in the important Battle of Monmouth as both armies were heading north. In that battle, in 92-degree heat, both Burr and Hamilton had their horses shot from under them. Burr suffered from heat prostration. See, it affected everybody. Nevertheless, he was ordered to spy on British movements in and around New York in preparation for the arrival of the first French naval fleet of the war. Meanwhile, Hamilton continued north with Washington and the Army. In mid-July, there were, was a four-day encampment in Paramus in Hopperston, Hopperstown, also known as Hohokus. Here, Washington accepted an invitation from Theodosia Previs to make the Hermitage his headquarters. While here, Washington dispatched Lafayette and Hamilton to meet with Vice Admiral Destein, I'm having a hard time talking tonight, whose fleet had just arrived off of Sandy Hook. Before leaving, Hamilton had the opportunity together with other of Washington aides camp and other officers to enjoy Theodosia's hospitality. As James McHenry wrote, at Mrs. Prevost, we found some fair refugees from New York who were on a visit to the Lady of the Hermitage. With them, we talked and walked and laughed and danced and gallanted away the leisure hours of four days and four nights and would have gallanted and danced and laughed and talked and walked with them till now had not the general given orders for our departure. Okay, but- stop right there. Mm. Now, notice, ladies and gentlemen, her husband's not there. All of the men that surround her that are highly decorated British soldiers, they're not even in the Americas. Otherwise, she couldn't get away with this. No. <laughs> right? I know. See, that's, that's mean, where the, the discussion comes in. Was she actually a loyalist? Because now she's American. She's fifth generation American. And she married a British soldier from French-Swiss heritage. But that was when she, you know, they were all British subjects. Um, so, here, you know, we, we, I wish she had a diary or a journal or something so that we would know what her thoughts were during this time when, I mean, the fact that she's married to a British soldier, especially one as prominent as, as Jacques Marcus was, um put her in, uh, you know, a target on her back by the Patriots. So here she is. Her husband's away. Everybody's away. And in come some of the most important officers, as well as the commander-in-chief. And she says, come to my house. So she was... She was smart because here she is surrounded by the Patriots. She doesn't want to lose her house. She wants to keep her kids, her mom and her her, uh, stepsister safe, as well as, you know, the people on the property. And what better than to invite the commander-in-chief and his aides-de-camp and the the Marquis de Lafayette to his to her house and entertain them. 
And apparently she did quite well because uh, James McHenry was quite entranced. Well, and the other thing is that the la- all the other ladies went along with him, with it, okay? And, and th- that's why I wanted you to read this. Because this other article shows what was going on around Bergen County at that time. But this brings up a lot more questions. That's why I'm glad you did say that we wish we had her diaries. Because did she, in her correspondence with her husband, tell him what he was doing? Because you know that they sent letters back and forth. Yeah. I, I mean, well, they didn't get them all. They didn't, you know, they didn't correspond, you know, all the time. But we're talking a four-year period here. Well, and the fact that, that, you know, I'm sure that the community knew that General Washington, et cetera, et cetera, were at the Hermitage. Um, so I imagine if, if, if I were Theodosia and my husband, you know, I, if I had to, okay, I'm writing a letter to my husband, a British soldier of great import. Um, I would couch it in, I'm keeping us safe. You know, using this as a defense, a defensive maneuver to keep our property and our family safe. And that's how I would do it. And I think that's what she probably did. I would imagine. She was brilliant. I just, I just I, yeah, I mean, and, you know, they don't even say, and we have to assume, I know we hate assuming, that there were loyalists in the area as well. Yes. Yes. That knew her husband. <laughs> so, I mean, she I mean, had to say something, I'm sure, because I'm sure it would have, you know, having been, you know, it, around the military, you and I both have, we know it's a small world. And people know people that you wouldn't even think that would know people. But they do because, you know, they transfer all over and they fight together and, you know, they they go to officer school together. I mean, it's just, it's a small world. Word gets around. Okay. Um, Let's see, how much do I have of this? Oh, yeah, we have a lot. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to split this up with you. Okay. Because my chest is starting to hurt. Um, let me just do, get to this one part because I have something about what she does. Um, the Hermitage became a place of tranquility and culture during a time of chaos and violence. Theodosia was a marvelous hostess and conversationalist because she was well-read and fluent in French and Latin. She was sophisticated and understood the political issues of the day. Theodosia's style of entertaining was not unlike the French salons where guests debated political theory, philosophy, and religion. Sometimes they wrote poetry, and Theodosia was skilled in crambu. An impromptu writing context, which was all the rage in the 18th century salons. The men who stayed at the Hermitage found Theodosia and her lady friends delightful. Now, Crambo. This is from Wikipedia. Crambo is a rhyming game, which, according to Joseph Strutt, was played as early as the 14th century under the name of the ABC of Aristotle. It is also known as a capping the rhyme. 
The name may have been used to describe a doggerel poem which exhausts the possible rhymes with a particular word. In the early versions of the game up to the 18th century, teams would vie with each other to find and express a rhyme for a word or a line presented by the opposing player or team. Someone would offer the first rhyme, often poking fun at a dignitary. The subsequent lines or couplets would then have to rhyme with this. The verse would be sung to a popular tune of the day, and the game collapsed when a player was unable to use his wit to come up with a suitable rhyming word. This would be virtually impossible to play with anybody of this century. Yes. Yes. <laughs> these kids, the, these kids in the generation, two, gen, three generations behind me, have no, they have no grasp of the written or the verbal word. No, no. And, and I mean, they text so much that they just know, you know, acronyms anymore. Okay, do you have this site up? I do. Okay, so get down to Bergen County. Okay, Bergen County was one of the most contested areas in America. While Patriot militias had control of northern Bergen County and the British occupied lower Bergen County, the region between was attacked by both sides, and neighbors on both sides were killed, wounded, or imprisoned. However, the women of the Hermitage were spared attacks from the Patriots because there were no male British supporters residing there who might fight against the revolution. And the British actions in the vicinity did not pose a threat to the women since it was well known that the property was owned by one of their military officers. The largest danger Theodosia had to face was the threat of confiscation of her home and property by the Patriots. There were those in the area who wanted to send the women to the British in New York City and take the Hermitage as a prize. Theodosia worked actively to counter this threat by sending petitions to the New Jersey State Patriot Authorities. In September 1777, when 21-year-old Aaron Burr made a successful attack on a British picket outside of Hackensack, he stopped in Paramus, a Patriot post coming and going. Theodosia's cousin, Captain John Watkins, was in Burr's regiment, and she probably met Burr at this time. Well, they took this from that other article. Technically, she was an enemy, but the American officers of the immediate vicinity did not consider her as such. Burr's days was short, for he and his regiment were ordered to winter in Valley Forge. In 1778, the Continental Army engaged the British regulars in the important Battle of Monmouth, June 28, 1778, as both armies were heading north, in that battle in 92-degree heat, Burr had his horse shot from under him and suffered from heat prostration. He was next ordered to spy on British movements in around New York City in preparation for the arrival of the first French naval fleet. In July 1778, word reached Theodosia that General George Washington and his troops would be passing through on their way from Monmouth Courthouse to White Plains in Westchester County, New York, when the general and his entourage stopped at a local house, Theodosia sent an invitation to Washington and his men to come and stay at the Hermitage, stating that the accommodations were the most commodious in the area. Washington accepted her offer, and for four days he and his officers were entertained at the Hermitage. Um, and then it goes on to tell what James McHenry said, and it was wonderful, and, and uh, 
there at Washington, and Alexander Hamilton had the opportunity to enjoy Theodosia's hospitality. While Hamilton remained with Washington, as the Continental Army moved across the Hudson River to Westchester County, Aaron Burr was put in charge of bringing leading Tories down the Hudson under a truce flag to the British in New York City. Theodosia and her half-sister were passengers on one of Burr's trips down the Hudson to visit relatives. Over five days, Theodosia and Burr had a chance to get to know each other. His health impaired by exhaustion and exposure through autumn 1788, Burr spent some time recuperating at the Hermitage. He then received command of the Westchester Line, brought discipline to these troops, and engaged in a number of skirmishes. But illnesses, I think that meant they meant 1778. Um, I, I don't know, but it just doesn't sound right to me. But anyway. No, it does, but that doesn't sound right at all. But illness continued to plague him, and Washington allowed Burr to retire from the Army. It took him more than a year to recover. He then studied law, continued to visit the Hermitage, and to engage in extended correspondence with Theodosia. Now, James Marcus and his brother, General Augustine, had raised a new battalion in Europe for his British regiment, which was first stationed in the West Indies, then in British Florida. In 1778, the Prevost moved into the southern American colonies where the Revolutionary War was then raging. James Marcus became the second in command to his brother in the successful British campaign in Georgia and the Carolinas. After Savannah's capture in December 1778, he was for a short time British governor of Georgia. James Marcus asked Theodosia to send their two sons, who were mere boys, aged 11 and 9, to join him in the South to follow in their father's footsteps as ensigns with the British forces. So during the entire course of the war, her position continued to be one of great apprehension. The success of James Marcus and his relatives against the Patriots in the South increased the interest of the Bergen County Commissioners for forfeited estates to take action against the Hermitage. At the end of 1778, the New Jersey legislature passed a law calling for the confiscation of property owned by loyalists and others who were acting against the independence cause. The Hermitage was a prime target. Despite the influence of friends, threats to her property continued for two years. In November, yes, she didn't have a nervous breakdown. In November 1780, she was informed that there are inquisitions found and returned in the Court of Common Pleas held for Bergen County on the fourth Tuesday in October last against the following persons, to wit, James Marcus Prevost. Any final judgment was rendered in January 1781. However, the issue of confiscation after the fall of 1780 disappeared from the records and letters of all concerned parties. The indictments against the Hermitage properties were never executed. Apparently, the prolonged advocacy of Aaron Burr and many others had eventually taken effect. It may have also helped that James Marcus was no longer fighting against American troops. Early in 1780, Prevost was assigned to Jamaica to deal with disturbances there. The health conditions in Jamaica debilitated the English troops. In July, Prevost reported to London that most of his officers were in the infirmary, and he feared the annihilation of his regiment. Prevost's own health was in decline. Sometime in 1780, he sent his sons back to their mother at the Hermitage, and they undoubtedly reported on their father's poor health. In early 1781, Aaron Burr, now in better health, was deeply involved in his studies 
from 16 to 20 hours a day. His relationship with Theodosa through the rest of 1781 seemed to have been mostly through correspondence. For much of this time, Theodosia stayed with Burr's sister, Sally Reeves, in Litchfield, Connecticut, for reasons that are unclear, possibly to avoid New Jersey wagging tons. In May 1781, Theodosia wrote to Burr from Litchfield, Our being the subject of much inquiry, conjecture, and calumny is no more than we ought to expect. My attention to you was ever pointed enough to attract the observation of those who visited the house. Your esteem more than compensated for the worst they could say. When I am sensible, I can make you and myself happy. I will readily, I will readily adjoin you to suppress their malice, but till I am confident of this, I cannot think of our union. Till then, I shall take shelter under the roof of my dear mother, where by joining stock we shall have sufficient to stem the torrent of adversity. You speak of my spirits as if they were at my command or depressed only from perverseness of temper. In these you mistake. Believe me, you cannot wish their return more ardently than I do. I would this moment consent to become a public mendicant could I be restored to the same tranquility of mind I enjoy this time twelve months. The influence my letters may have on your studies is imaginary. The idea is so trite that I ask and hope it was worn from your mind. My last year trials are vouchers. I was always writing with a view to please you and has often failed in the attempt. If a desire for my own happiness cannot restore me to myself, pecuniary motives never can. I wish you to study for your own sake, to ensure yourself respect and independence to ensure us the comforts of life when providence deigns to fit our hearts for the enjoyment. I shall never look forward with confidence till your pride extends to that. I had vainly flattered myself that pride was inseparable to true love. In yours I find my error, but cannot renounce my idea of it being a necessary support to and the only security for permanent affection. My health and spirits are neither better nor worse than when you left me. Adieu, Theodosia. Theodosia lacked the beauty of some of Burr's many previous loves, but what she did possess was a highly educated, razor-sharp mind, a quality largely unknown in this society which placed little emphasis on the education of women. The few surviving letters give some insight into what increasingly bound them together, an interest in the ideas of leading thinkers and thoughts touching on the meaning of life, their happiness, and their future, as well as how to react to the negative opinions of others concerning their relationship. By fall 1781, Burr had completed his studies. The next task was to get these efforts approved in Albany by the three sitting Supreme Court justices who were empowered to issue the license needed to practice law in New York. Burr had a major problem. Since colonial times, a candidate for the bar had to complete three years of apprenticeship. Burr could claim barely one year. However, Burr pushed on. He moved up to Albany and petitioned the justices, stating, Surely no rule could be intended to have such retrospect as to injure one whose only misfortune is having sacrificed his time, his constitution, and his fortune to his country. But the judges delayed a decision for several months. Burr remained in Albany, but was able to make a visit or two to Theodosia. Accompanying a body of troops in Jamaica in 1781, James Marcus died of wounds suffered earlier in the war. On December 30, 1781, Theodosia's half-sister, Katie, wrote Burr from the Hermitage, If you have not seen the York Gazette, the following account will be news to you. 
We hear from Jamaica that Lieutenant Colonel Prevost, major of the 60th foot, died at that place in October last. While the news in the Gazette legally opened the way for Theodosia and Aaron, Aaron Burr to marry as soon as, as seemed to be their intention, there was no decision to act quickly. Burr was still in Albany attempting to get the license to begin a career that could bring him an income. Theodosia seemed hesitant. There was the fact that she was 35 and he was 25. And despite Burr's attractive characteristics, Theodosia had to weigh some of his less attractive traits. She arranged to spend time with relatives after the new year. Then, in January 1782, the three New York Supreme Court justices agreed that time spent in the military would be taken into consideration in judging the qualifications for admission to the bar. Burr was examined, passed, and obtained his license as an attorney on January 19. He, January 19. he then immediately began his study for the next and highest rank in the perfection, profession, counselor at law, which he attained on April 17th. Burr was now ready to set up his own law office and decided to do so in Albany, since New York City was still occupied by the British. While he was busy establishing his law practice through spring 1782, he got news that Theodosia's half-sister Katie and her fiancé, Joseph Brown, a British-born medical doctor and rebel officer, had set July 2nd as the date for their wedding at the Hermitage. Burr arrived there some time before the event, and they decided to make it a double wedding. On July 2, 1782, 35-year-old Theodosia Prevost, with five children, married 25-year-old Aaron Burr at the Hermitage. After the wedding, Theodosia and Aaron settled in Albany, where he developed his law practice. As an attorney in New York, Burr had a few equals. He commanded large fees with which he furnished splendid homes, clothed himself and his wife in the most elegant fashion, and entertained lavishly. The newlyweds moved to New York City the following year after the British evacuation in 1783. Here, Burr and Alexander Hamilton rose in the legal profession and in the politics of the new nation. In 1783, he was elected to the New York Assembly. In 1789, he was appointed the state's attorney general. Two years later, Burr took a United States Senate seat from Philip Schuyler, Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law. Burr and Hamilton had long been political and professional antagonists. This election elicited Hamilton's unrelenting hatred. During their marriage, Theodosia gave birth to four children with Aaron Burr, but only one survived, a daughter they named Theodosia. At birth. Okay, can I just interrupt you? I got kicked off again. Oh, yeah. Um. I want to do a little bit about Aaron Burr because we haven't really talked about him. Yeah, yeah, he's interesting. Okay, so, and let me look at where you are in this um, article, because I don't know if they get into, um, I see where you are right now. Yeah, she gave, yeah, to four children. Okay, Okay, so we're just going to go up to where she, um, she dies on this article. Okay. Okay, but let me talk about Aaron Burr a little bit. Really brief um, history on Aaron Burr from Historic Valley Forge. Aaron Burr was born on in 1756 in New Jersey, so he was a New Jersey boy as well as she. Surprisingly, their paths didn't cross before this. Mm. He was the son of Aaron Burr Sr., the second president of Princeton, as well as the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. 
He graduated at 16 from the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton, as a student of theology. He eventually switched his career track to study law. Burr began his military service as a volunteer around 1775. He served as a volunteer during Benedict Arnold's March to Quebec, 17, September 13th to November 9th, 1775. He is actually credited with trying to evacuate the body of General Richard Montgomery after he was killed in action during the invasion. Uh, could you do me a favor and get, did I give you the links to the Battle of Mammoth? No. Okay. All right, I was just wondering. Um, he joined the staff of George Washington in 1776 when he was sent to New York City. He and General Washington apparently did not get along, and he left a few weeks later on June 22nd. He became an aide to the camp to General Putnam, Putnam, eventually seeing action in the Battle of Long Island and the evacuation of New York City. He was commissioned Lieutenant Colonel of Malcolm's Regiment on January 4, 1777. He was stationed at Orange County, New York, essentially the commander of the regiment at the age of 21. He spent the winter of 1777 and 78 at Valley Forge, where he was almost involved with the Conway Cabal. After evacuating with the Army on June 19, 1778, he commanded a brigade during Mammoth, which we're going to get into that battle because that was an important one. After the action there, he openly supported General Charles Lee, whom Washington had reprimanded upon finding him retreating from battle, and that's what we're going to get into. Um, let's see. And then you got into his whole thing, and then we're going to get into the, the rest of her um, article because this is just redundant of what you're reading, so we can get back to her. Okay. So that was him. Yes. So she was attracted to military guys, wasn't she? Well, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, Aaron Burr, you know, he, he was uh, quite a young rogue. Um, let's see. Okay, gave birth to the four children and had a daughter named Theodosia, the only one who survived. So it's sad. Theodosia managed a succession of increasingly affluent homes in New York City, as well as a summer residence in Westchester County, near many of her Bartow and Pell relatives. She oversaw Aaron's law office when he was on his frequent business trips and helped raise their daughter, whom Burr took great pains to educate, promising to make her the equal of any man. God bless him. Years later, Theodosia became ill with cancer, which progressed despite the efforts of the leading doctors in the young nation. In her last year of life, she inspired Burr to set up a school with Madame de Finet for young ladies and gentlemen in New York City. She died of stomach cancer on May 18, 1794, at the age of 48. <laughs> Long before Aaron Burr became such a controversial figure, Burr was devastated. From that moment on, he focused his love on his daughter, who would serve as his refuge during his darkest days. So, and then it gets into the rest of, of Burr and into the duel with Alexander Hamilton and, <coughs> and his political... Uh, and it says that he saw other women but did not find a marriage partner to love like Theodosia for nearly 40 years, marrying again at age 77. Even then, he said, the mother of my Theo was the best woman and finest lady I have ever known. Yes. 
and then he went, he got himself during that time period after her death he he became uh, a politician and then became um, vice president and then Alexander Hamilton and he got into it yep okay um let's see let me send you the Battle of Mammoth real quick because um, I'm hurting. <laughs> okay. Um, hold on. And I got to compose. The reason that we're doing the Battle of Mammoth is because um, I'm in the wrong damn thing. The reason that we're doing the Battle of Mammoth is because it was one of the rare times, and I'm going to do that little ditty, that um, General Washington lost it. Now, you, you have General Washington's um, book, so you know more about him and what his, how his uh, temperament was. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Okay, battle, battle, battle. You have your book in front of you? I have my book in front of me. Wow. Hold on. You are really prepared for class. um, George doesn't go far from me. Okay. All right. Now. Okay, this... uh, this is when, on June 25th, Washington learned that British troops were approaching the tiny crossroads village of Monmouth Courthouse and deputized Charles Lee to lead the offensive. When Lee balked at the assignment as beneath his lofty dignity, fit only for a young volunteering general, Washington handed the job to Lafayette, who would command the vanguard force to harry the British rear. The young Frenchman, in raptures with his command and burning to distinguish himself, yes, remember the Marquis de Lafayette was only like 19 or 20 at the time. Um, the aide, Jen James McHenry, wrote in his diary, uh, suddenly afraid that Lafayette would steal his glory, Lee informed Washington that he had reconsidered. They say that a corps consisting of 6,000 men, the greater part chosen, is undoubtedly the most honorable command next to the commander-in-chief, that my seating it would, of course, have been an odd appearance, he wrote with considerable understatement. I must entreat, therefore, that if this detachment does march, that I may have the command of it. If he did not get the command, Lee asserted, he would be disgraced, which meant he might have to resign. Oh, he was such a poop. Whatever Washington thought of Lee's attempts to gratify his own self-importance, he couldn't afford a feud with the second-in-command on the eve of the battle, even if Lee had shown little sympathy for the planned attack. On the other hand, he didn't wish to disappoint Lafayette, so he crafted a nice compromise, adding 1,000 men to the operation and placing Lafayette under Lee's nominal command. As James McHenry wrote, to prevent disunion, Lee is detached with with a brigade to join the Marquis Oh, with two brigades to join the Marquis and a senior officer of the command. His detachment consists of 5,000 men, four-fifths of whom were picked for this service. On June 27th, as the British reached the vicinity of Monmouth Courthouse, 
the advance American forces pulled to within six miles of the tail end of their column. Meeting with his generals, Washington ordered Lee to attack the British column the next morning, as soon as it sprang into motion. He himself would hang in the rear with 6,000 men prepared to move forward the main body of the army. In retrospect, Washington conceded too much latitude to Lee, and the open-ended nature of the battle plans would breed fatal confusion the following day. Uh, Around dawn, Washington learned that the British Army had risen early and was already marching toward Sandy Hook. He sent orders for General Lee to move on and attack them unless there should be very powerful reasons to the contrary, and started toward Monmouth Courthouse with his men. Washington recommended that Lee's men jettison their packs and blankets to accelerate their speed. Unfamiliar with the local topography, Lee found himself penetrating terra incognita, a problem that had troubled the Continental Army in previous contests. On this morning of brutal weather, the temperature would zoom close to 100 degrees, and many men stripped off their shirts and rode bare-chested. Joseph Plum Martin opined that the mouth of a heated oven seemed to me to be but a trifle hotter than this plowed field. It was almost impossible to breathe. At 11 a.m., Washington, accompanied by troops under Sterling and Green, wrote to Henry Lawrence that several men had already expired from the heat. Toward noon, as his main force advanced towards Monmouth Courthouse, Washington couldn't see what was happening up ahead and assumed that all was going according to plan. In reality, Lee had made only a confused, half-hearted attack against Clinton and Cornwallis, who, anticipating a possible attack, had concentrated their final soldiers in the rear. They turned the tables, gathered 6,000 men, and chased back the outnumbered Americans, who fell back in terror. Washington's first inkling of disaster came when a farmer told him that American troops were retreating. Having received no report from Lee himself, Washington was at first incredulous. Then a frightened young Pfeiffer, who who was hustled into his presence, assured him that the Continental troops there had been advanced were retreating. Washington was shocked. Fearful that a false report might trigger chaos, Washington categorically warned the boy that if he mentioned a thing of the sort, he would have have him whipped. Taking no chances, Washington spurred his horse toward the front. He had not gone 50 yards when he encountered several soldiers who who corroborated that the entire advance force was now staggering back in confused retreat. Soon Washington saw increasing numbers of men, dazed and exhausted from the stifling heat, tumbling toward him. He told aides that he was exceedingly alarmed and could not figure out why Lee had not notified him of this retreat. Then Washington looked up and saw the culprit himself riding toward him, General Lee trailed by his dog. What is the meaning of this, sir? Washington demanded. Anyways, he was upset. I desire to know the meaning of this disorder and confusion. According to some witnesses, it was one of those singular moments when Washington showed undisguised wrath. Indignant, Lee stared blankly at him and sputtered in amazement. Sir, sir, he asked, offended by Washington's tone. In his self-serving view of events, Lee believed that he had performed a prodigious feat, rescuing his overmatched army from danger and organizing an orderly retreat. The American troops would not stand the British bayonets, he insisted to Washington. You damned poltroon, Washington rejoined. You never tried them. Always reluctant to resort to profanities, the chase Washington cursed at Lee till the leaves shook on the tree, recalled General Scott. Charming, delightful, never have I enjoyed such swearing before or since. Lafayette said it was the only time he had ever heard Washington swear. I confess, confess I was disconcerted, astonished, and confounded by the words and the manner in which His Excellency accosted me, Lee recalled. 
He said Washington's tone was so novel and unexpected from a man whose discretion, humanity, and decorum he admired that its effect was much stronger than the words themselves. Lee, babbling incoherently, tried to explain to Washington that he found himself facing the British on an open plain, making his men easy prey for British cavalry. Washington brusquely dismissed Lee's reminder that he had opposed the attack in the first place. All this may be very true, sir, but you ought not to have undertaken it unless you intended to go through with it. In retrospect, Washington had trusted too much to an erratic general who had supported the mission only reluctantly, and he now banished him to the rear. Lafayette later said of Washington's encounter with Lee that no one had ever before seen Washington so terribly excited. His whole appearance was fearful. This was the temperamental side of Washington that he ordinarily kept under wraps. And that's from um, Washington, A Life by Ron Chernow, my Washington Bible. I'm glad that you read that instead of what I read because that was really more extensive than what they said in this article. Mhm. Oh yeah. Well, Lee was Lee was a he he. Oh, finally they got him. I mean, he he did a conspiracy against Washington with the Congress, and he was taken prisoner, and he spilled the beans, and I, he just was. They should have gotten rid of him like five minutes after his first. But anyway. Well, anyway, we're coming up to the top of the hour. And I want to tell everybody out there, do not in any way, shape, or form listen to anything that is coming out of the lamestream media's mouth about our president. They want this man destroyed. And and actually, this goes with General Washington as well. Like you were just saying, Lee wanted him destroyed. I mean, and this is what happens with great men. Now, he's not the perfect president. George Washington wasn't the perfect general, but they were the, the men, they, and he is, and they, he was the men for the time. And they are going to do everything to destroy them, just like they tried with George Washington as well. Yeah. So, in that vein, I want you to go to a site called uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There you're going to find the Uncooperative Radio Show, which is a political and historical show. You're going to find this show, The Women of the Revolution. Pass this on to your friends. This is also a historical show and a political show. And Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us, patriotspub.us, you will find that that is just a historical uh, endeavor. There's no politics in it. But you need to lose these shows for fodder. These people, we are at war, and these people need to be taken down. So knowledge is the best uh, tool right now. And even our founding father said, and I'm going to say this every show, the only way to get rid of tyranny and not to become a tyrannical government is for the people to be educated. This is the education is before the gunfire. So go to uncooperative radio and listen to all the shows. The only show you have to listen from episode one is on the Patriots Pub because it's a day-by-day rendition of the Continental Convention of 1787. 
The other ones you can listen to, you know, whatever you want. Um, we don't go linear, uh, Deb and I. We go by women. So, uh, Deb, do you want to say anything else we got about, um, I want to say, five minutes? Well, yeah, about that. Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, the, the, the media, I mean, it's it's really, I, I've, being the political junkie I am, and I watched C-SPAN, I, I was watching C-SPAN for, you know, just kept it on all day just so I could hear these. Um, people, yeah, I, I like to hear things from the horse's mouth, not somebody's interpretation of what he said or she said. Um, it, it's just, it, it, well, I, I, a year ago I was saying that it was going to be, you know, going to be real ugly before it got better, and yeah. So it's just, um, you know, you try to keep your positive outlook. We, we, we are in a very interesting time. And a lot of uh, boats are being uh, rocked, and a lot of established, um, well, that's just the way things are, are being uprooted, and the uh, the elites don't like it, and the Bolsheviks want the control back, and uh, it's just not, it's not, uh, well, think of what Theodosia went through. She was in the middle of, the Brits and the Patriots, and she had to hold her line. And this is basically what we're doing at this point, is if, if we believe in America, what it was founded on, why it was founded, if we believe in our Constitution, and if we believe that we can overcome, you know, this wrinkle in time, um, you know, we have to keep the faith and keep our powder dry as they say. So I, I just want to uh, give a shout-out. Uh, President Trump gave honor to the blue line, the fallen blue uh, men and women, and I want to echo that. Um, they've been through a, a rough period lately, and they are the ones that run towards danger, just like our our firefighters and our uh, EMTs. They, they run towards the bad stuff so that we don't have to, just like our kids in uniform, go into cesspools and get shot at so that we don't have to. Um, You know, God bless every one of them. So if you can, please, please contact your representative to make sure that our military is given what it needs, that the social engineering stops, and that they are, you know, given the jobs of, breaking and shooting things. Um, this this nonsense that's been going on in the Army or in the military is, is just beyond the pale, and it's not helping our force uh, be the strongest and the most efficient in the world. So, and then when they come home, please don't forget the veterans. Um, again, get in touch with your representatives and let them know that you're watching what they do in regard to the veterans, because the veterans are dying waiting for care. And the care isn't always the best. So this needs to be stopped. They they were, it's in their contracts that this is what they get, you know, that they're taken care of. And the Congress has just been 
ridiculous and it's ignoring the elephant in the room. So let your representatives know that you're you care about the vets and that you're watching what they do. And uh, pray for our troops that are in icky places and Afghanistan's heating up and Syria's not looking good and North Korea's doing its thing and hopefully China will uh, rein in the, the little fat boy. And um, But we can't, you know, that's no guarantee there. And pray for wisdom amongst our leaders. They could really use some because they're not showing that they have any. And uh, and with that, um, um, I guess we're we're pretty much done for tonight. Wow, we made it a whole month. We made it a whole <laughs> month. Yay! <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the show, and I hope you come back um, next week. And hopefully, we will be here. If not, I will put up an announcement. And uh, when we will be, usually we try to do it the next night if we can. But you no, know, life happens like all the time. So, but really, um, have yourself a safe week. And as I said, keep your powder dry and keep the faith. And we shall be here next week with another amazing woman that uh, we will introduce you to. And with that, we shall say good night. Good night, Loki. We're we're keeping on. So, good night, everybody. We'll see you next week. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.